I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 49th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that a woman building up her house has nothing to do with brick and mortar, but with a woman cementing the relationship between herself and her husband. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Today on this Halloween day on October 31st, our lesson for this morning is the 49th uh, part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text this morning is in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verses 20 and 25, which read as follows. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name. Of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, our next episode has to do with the first wife of David, the greatest king of Israel. Now, God did not intend that Israel become a kingdom. God intended to govern Israel through a prophet or a judge that he appointed. Now, Eli, the judge of Israel, whom we discussed last week, had two corrupt sons, and God did not allow them to succeed Eli. The barren woman, Hannah, promised God her son, Samuel, and when God caused Eli and both of his sinful sons to die on the same day, Samuel became the judge of Israel. And although Samuel was a godly judge, Samuel was not able to pass on his godliness to his sons. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 and 3 and 5 records, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old 
that he made his sons judges over Israel. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse, verse 5 tells us that the elders of Israel wanted Israel to be like the nations around them. But God told Israel just before they entered the promised land in Deuteronomy 18, 9, and 15, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now in this passage of scripture, the Lord is telling Israel to not look outside themselves to the word for guidance, but rather follow the law of God. Now, there are two forces in the world, the benevolent force of God, the Holy Spirit, and the malevolent force of Satan. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, while Satan is the spirit of error or evil. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief, meaning Satan, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in John 16 and 13, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And God, in the Old Testament, tells the Israelites to not follow the ways of the people of the nations, which is equivalent to Jesus in the New Testament, telling us to follow the Holy Spirit. But the Israelites found the ways of the people of the land compelling. Now, when people come together, there is a force that binds us. That force is conformity or peer pressure, and it is a difficult force to overcome because peer pressure is that which allows us to get along with one another. Now, God appoints leaders, and it is our job to conform to the dictates of God's leader. In the nation of Israel, God made Moses, Joshua, and the judges' leaders in turn, and God tasked them to lead the Israelites to conform to the dictates and the doctrines of his word. God is the author of conformity because he wants us, he wants rather the leader, to conform to his word, and he wants the people to conform to the commands of his leader. And God commands us to conform to his word, but conformity as a force is neither positive nor negative. Conformity is like fire. Fire can heat a house, and fire can destroy that same house. So if we choose to conform to the Word of God, our conformity is positive, but if we choose to conform to the thinking of those that disobey God, 
our conformity is negative. And the Apostle Paul likens our conformity to slavery as he explains it to us in Romans chapter 6, verse 16 through 23. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of Christian doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul tells us that we will have a relationship with Jesus Christ eternally if we volunteer to become his slaves. And the interesting thing about the slave analogy is that a slave does not have to desire to follow the dictates of his master. The slave obeys in order to avoid the penalty that comes from his master for disobedience. Likewise, it is not necessary for us to feel like conforming to the word of God. As slaves, it is only necessary that we do conform. And that is an extremely interesting point. We do not have to feel like doing that which God tells us to do. We only have to do it whether we feel like it or not. And why is this true? Well, we do not have to feel like doing the thing that God tells us to do because of the design of emotions. God has designed our emotions so that they are reactive, meaning our actions can change our emotions. Whether or, not we do, we, whether or not we do desire to obey the Lord, if we discipline ourselves to do so, we will develop the desire to obey God that we did not initially feel. Now, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he will abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And the helper, the Spirit of truth, helps us by changing our emotions. 
We may not feel like following the dictates of the Lord, but if we ignore our feelings and discipline ourselves to do that which the Lord tells us, the Spirit will help us by changing our feelings. It may seem backward, but to, to, but to desire the will of God, we first have to obey God who told Israel in Deuteronomy 18 and 9, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abomination of those nations. Actions precede desire. But Israel chose not to obey. First Samuel 8.5 records, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, it was unfortunate that Samuel's sons did not make good judges, but this was certainly not the first time that a judge's son was not fit to carry on after his father. You may remember that Samuel was the judge in Israel because Eli, the previous judge, had two morally deficient sons. Now, the Israelites could have waited for God to appoint a godly judge to succeed Samuel, but the nation of Israel was tired of judges, particularly of judges that ruled according to the word of God. Israel wanted a king to have authority over them rather than a man of God so that they could live as did the nations. And the Lord knew it. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 7 through 9 records, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And our society rejects God in the same way. In 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that school-sponsored prayer was illegal before, because a few vocal citizens in positions of authority rejected God, that God should not reign over them. The will of the majority was subordinated to the desires of this vocal minority, and this action marked the beginning of the secularization of our society. And the secularization of our society is progressing as the expressions of Christianity in the public square that were commonplace 58 years ago are not only discouraged, but are considered unconstitutional and demonized. Not only that, but we live in a society in which it is now legal to kill infant children on a whim, either by aborting them in the womb or leaving them in hot cars to die, and one in which the abomination of homosexuality is increasingly applauded as equal to God's sacrament of marriage. And while the majority of Americans self-identify as Christians, Fewer of our young people are doing so because their Christian parents are allowing them to conform to those abominations during their formative years. 
According to the 2009 American Religious Identification Survey, the percentage of Americans that self-identify as Christian has fallen 10 percentage points since 1990, from 86 to 76 percent, and the majority of those in the non-Christian category are younger people. Many young people no longer agree with Christian doctrines, such as Hebrews 13 and 4, which says marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Young people now want to make their own rules, or rather conform to the rules of Satan, which are the opposite of the rules of God. On September 23rd of this year, CBS News reported Census Bureau data that indicates that the number of shack-ups jumped 13% during this year to 7.5 million and 38% of the children born in our country are born out of wedlock. So I guess that Hebrews 13 and 4 is pretty much out of the window. And the trend in our society mirrors that of Israel that is our subject for today. Disobedient Israel rejected God, so God told Samuel to anoint Saul as the king of Israel. Now, Saul looked impressive to Israel's enemies in his armor, but Saul, as king, consistently disobeyed God. And after God ignored, after Saul ignored God's command to destroy the wealth of the Amalekites, but decided to keep the money, Samuel said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 9 through 23, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought back brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best things which should have been utterly, utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And because of Saul's disobedience, God sent Samuel to anoint a new king, even as Saul was still serving. For Samuel 16, 1, 5, 5 through 7 and 10 through 14 records, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said to Jesse, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came, that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance 
or at his physical stature, for I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, David, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And this distressing spirit from the Lord caused Saul to hate David. Especially after the spirit of God gave David the power to slay the Philistine giant Goliath making David a greater military leader in Israel than Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6 through 9 and 12 through 16 record, Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with his tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed David from his presence and made David his captain over a thousand. And David went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that David behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And when Goliath was terrorizing Israel, Saul promised his daughter in marriage to the man that had the courage to kill Goliath. And since Saul was afraid of David, Saul tried to use his daughter to get rid of David. 1 Samuel 18, 22, uh, 20 through 22 and 25 records, Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. 
So Saul sent David on a particularly difficult miss mission to earn Michael as his wife. Not only did David have to kill a hundred Philistines to get Michael, but David had to maim them in a manner that would be particularly difficult to fulfill. But 1 Samuel 18, 27-29 records, Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full account to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Now David was in a tough position. Saul, the king of Israel, and David's military commander, was David's enemy even as David was in command of the most productive unit in Saul's army. And David's wife is Michael, uh, uh, David's wife Michael is Saul, David's enemy's daughter. So David has enemies in places in which a man needs friends. But David is blessed by God. The first sentence in 1 Samuel 18 and 20 tells us, Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And in Matthew 19, 4 and 6, Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let not man separate. And Saul is a man. Saul is Michael's father, and Saul is David's enemy, but Saul is also a man. And Jesus tells us that no man or woman, including father and mother, is supposed to come between a man and his wife. If your son or your daughter who you raised from infancy decides to marry someone whom you think is inappropriate, you have until the wedding vows are taken to register your disagreement with your child and try to convince them to not make the mistake that they are intent on making in your opinion. Once the vows are taken, however, God commands you to end your efforts to derail their union, rather, you are called upon to support them as man and wife and do your best to make sure that no one comes between them, not even you. And you may argue that God could not have sent such a person as your child's spouse. But the fact of the matter is that God has joined your child and their spouse together no matter how inappropriate you may think their union to be, because your child and their spouse asked God to do so. Malachi spoke to the Israelites when they wanted to divorce their wives and told them that if they did, God would not even receive the sacrifices that they offered to him. Then Malachi 2.14 explained, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, 
yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And Malachi tells us that God is a witness at our weddings and that God counts the breaking of the covenant made at the altar as treachery. God does not choose spouses for us. God gives us guidelines as to how to choose a spouse, but God also gives us dominion over the decision as to whether or not to make a covenant with a spouse. And God is serious about our keeping our covenants. God commands us to conform to his word. The apostle Paul likens our conformity to slavery as he explains it to us in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, 22, and 23. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end, everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Saul's desires notwithstanding, Michael and David are married, and Michael's allegiance has shifted from her father to her husband. Although Saul is the king, Saul is still Michael's father, and Saul wants David dead. Saul finds that he cannot enlist Michael's support. 1 Samuel 19, 11-18 record, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael's David's wife told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, Michael said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why shall I kill you? So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Naoth. Of course, David never actually threatened Michael. Michael warned David of the danger from Saul and then did her best to make sure that David escaped her father. Michael was protecting herself from Saul when she lied to him, and given the irrationality of her father, Michael was risking her own life, but for her to do so was wise. Proverbs 14 and 1 tells us, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hand. And by protecting her husband, Michael was building up her house. Building up her house has nothing to do with brick and mortar. It has to do with a woman giving herself to cement the relationship between herself and her husband. 
And the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus put himself in harm's way for us, just as Michael put herself in harm's way for her husband. In Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, which said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Michael, the king's daughter, served her husband instead of the king. Jesus Christ, the king's son, also took on the demeanor of a servant. John 13, 2 through 5 and 12 through 15 tells us, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So let us not be afraid to serve one another, even as God himself has served us. God tells us of Jesus' service to us in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus Christ served us by dying on the old rugged cross as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins that we have committed. There is no good deed that we could perform that would make up for the sinfulness of our lives, but Jesus came to earth to live a sinless life in order to serve us by offering his perfect life as a substitute for our worthless lives at the last judgment. God is too holy and too righteous to even look upon our sinfulness. But when those of us that are Jesus' slaves reach the judgment, God will not see our sinfulness because our sins will be covered from God's view by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. And those of us that are his slaves and believe in him will not perish as will the unbeliever but we will be Jesus' servants everlastingly in heaven with God. As Paul tells us in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, Jesus saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom God poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of, according to the hope of eternal life. And what is the commandment that Jesus has given us to follow? Not the 700 commandments of the Old Testament law, but just one new commandment given by Jesus in John 13 and 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And as Jesus' slaves, let us love one another. Let us start at home and love one another. Husbands and wives, parents and children, let us love one another. We don't have to feel like loving one another when we start, but if we perform loving actions, the Holy Spirit will change our feelings. And that's how we become godly. That's how we are changed from sinner to saint. That's how we actually become Christian. So do the work, whether you feel like it or not. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Christian God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and we thank you for the revelation of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we ask you, Lord, that you would allow the Spirit to change us, change our thinking, change our feeling, so that we may think and feel and desire to be godly and to love one another, even as you have loved us and have shown us your love by your service for us on your, on your, by your sacrifice on the cross. Make us your slaves that we might obey your good instructions and that we might live a life that is pleasing in your sight. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross arising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com.